0: Welcome to the latest Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast. I'm your regular host, Blaine Dowler. Joining me again is our resident anime expert, Alexander Case. Hello! This week it's a little bit different. For the most part, we're going to be looking at conversations between two people who've seen the same work and discussing it. In this case, we're looking at Cowboy Bebop the Mummy, which only one of us has seen. So basically this is going to amount to Alex telling me why I should go out of my way to track a copy down and check it out.
1: Now, the good news is it's not too hard to track this down as opposed to the show that the uh, movie is based on. Um, I'm not going to call back to a bit I discussed earlier on the Animatrix podcast. Most film, anime films, tend to be based on existing work, um, usually a manga or Japanese comic book or an anime TV series. Um, and then the adaptations tend to be Either a comp, what's called a compilation movie, which is basically taking the larger work and combining it and boiling it down to one single work, which is what we'll see later with um, when we get around to Akira and Ghost in the Shell, or a sort of side story film, um, which kind of fills in the gaps, a a gap in the story, or just tell a story, just tell, take an episode level story or story arc level story and put it in a feature-length um, form with the higher budget that you get when you're making a movie. And that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Uh, the show Cowboy Bebop, um, it's directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, who directed in Animatrix, the segments Detective Story and Kid Story. And it's a semi-hard space opera series set in in and around the solar system. The idea is... It's in the moderately far future, um, like twenty, like twenty two seventy or something like that. And most of the planets and, and certainly major moons in the solar system have been terraformed. There are habitable places on Mars. We have semi habitable places on some of the moons of Jupiter. And because of this, law enforcement and Particularly related to the tracking down of fugitives has become tricky, because I mean, when you're dealing with one planet, law enforcement already has their hands full. Expand this out to multiple planets, multiple moons. You need help, and thus, consequently, a big business is well bounty hunting. And oftentimes, the bounty hunters, are, the slang term in the society, is that bounty hunters are, are referred to as space cowboys which is where the cowboy part in Cowboy Bebop comes from. Um, The main characters in this are a group of three bounty hunters. um, Spike Spiegel, a ex-syndicate guy. It's not clear what his role was, where his muscle, or what have you. Who's kind of a mix of a little bit of um, some of the Philip Marlowe characters, a little bit of John McClane, and a little bit of Bruce Lee. He has this, uh, he has an investigative mind and a sharp wit, but he's also takes, frequently in these stories, takes a lot of a beating and can dish it out as well for his martial arts. Next, next character is Jet Black, who is a hard-boiled ex-cop who lost his arm after being lured into an ambush and now has a cybernetic arm, and he's kind of the team dad. He's also very investigative, he's got even more of Philip Marlowe in him than Spike does. Um, he's also kind of the one who's grousing around at the various antics that other car- the rest of the cast gets into, and the fact that he had, he's, he's stuck being the team dad to a certain degree. It also deals the like fact that it's his ship that they're on, the Bebop, which is a uh, converted sort of it's called space fishing boat. It goes from planet to planet fishing and taking the hull from One wherever they picked it up and selling it somewhere else. So remember, the team is Faye Valentine, and she's kind of the femme fatale type. She ended up actually being one of the team, meaning the team, as a bounty. And it turns out that the bounty wasn't totally legit, and she ended up taking up bounty hunting herself. She has a bit of a background as a con artist, and she's better at talking her way into catching people and that sort of thing, rather than brute force, you know, brute force and minor ignorance with some of the other team members. The show itself tends tonally to totally be a mix of kind of the noirous seriousness with a bit of with not a bit a fair amount of, of kind of comedy to it, a little bit of physical comedy, a little a lot of banter and that sort of thing. Um, okay, the show actually a fair amount of. Um, popular in the U.S., possibly also Canada, and served as a lot of people's gateway drug to anime because it was aired on Cartoon Network. Um was one of the, uh, basically, debut shows on their Adult Swim block. Um, actually, I think it even came in wh- back when it was just called Tsunami Midnight Run. The shows were aired mostly uncut. They had to digitally remove some blood and remove some profanity. But otherwise, the shows weren't changed much. Some episodes had to be cut or dropped due to real life getting in the way. particular, one episode involving a terrorist bomber was cut and dropped entirely after the September 11th attacks. Um, Mm -hmm. And the show is also pretty notable in that it kind of shook some people of their dove snobbishness. The show has an and the movie with it has an excellent dub with some fairly with some voice actors who've become fairly significant names. Um, we have Bo Billingsley who voices uh Jet. We have sorry to bring up the voice cast. We have um, uh Stephen Blum. Steve Blum is Spike Spiegel. Um, people who've been watching more of the Marvel animated stuff recently may recognize him as the voice of Wolverine in shows like Wolverine of the X-Men and I think in the um, event in the uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes show as well and Wendy Lee who's been doing the voice acting for pretty much a gig for pretty much forever uh as Faye Valentine and they all do a very excellent job and I mean, this is a show where I actually started paying attention to dubs after I watched the show when I was um, growing up. I think it was, like, on TV when I was, like, just entering high school. And so the show itself is, it has a very kind of semi-noir tone without using noir, without forcing it in a noir black-and-white style. Um, a lot of the episodes have a certain degree of shades of gray where... The person that the crew is chasing after isn't necessarily that bad and in fact it may actually not be in the maybe be in the best interests of the uh, not just the crews i don't know if I'm to rephrase this it's like the people putting out the ba- putting out the bounty aren't necessarily that good people because not all, not all the bounties are put out by law enforcement as well is the other thing sometimes private groups put out the bounty and the people who are being brought in may be actually mostly innocent and could be even being taken to their deaths. So there's all, there's certain few shades of gray for some show, for some of them. Other ones are very very clear cut. Um, and this movie tends to be more of the clear cut variety for the and um, for the who the bounty is and the antagonist. And I'll get into that a bit more. Um, the other significant thing about the show is music. Shichiro Watanabe... The director has a very keen ear for music and incorporating it in everything he's worked on. Uh his first major work that he directed was the Macross Plus direct to video sort of series OVA series, and we'll talk about Macros a bit Macross a bit later with uh, Do you remember Love? Um, and that's also where he first worked with Yoko Kano who did the music for the T V show and also the movie. And basically, the, put together as part of this sort of semi-noir style, semi-sci-fi noir style, uh, and very eclectic mix of musical styles, um, particularly heavily jazz focused. Yoko Kano, she's worked in anime music for a very long time, and there is literally, I could say with a- very strong degree to confidence that there is no genre that she has not managed to incorporate in her music everything from country to blues to improvisational jazz traditional j-pop to some more world music elements uh, even heavy metal so that, that really fits here where we have a setting which has planet um, where many settle all over the solar system, where characters of all different ethnicities, all different societies, from uh, Middle Eastern societies to Chinese to what have you, interacting with triads and the Yakuza and the mob. And it, it all makes for a very exciting eclectic mix, and who references all sorts of other live-action um, visual styles from noir to Hong Kong action films, uh, both of the Bruce Lee variety and the sort of John Woo hard-boiled, Gangster film variety, um, to space opera. It's it, it really covers all the bases, and it, it's a it's works for a perfect primer for Japanese animation. If as as if you've never watched anime before, it, Cowboy Bebop works perfectly as a gateway drug because it covers pretty much everything. There's something there for everyone at, at this dish, that table.
0: Okay, so I know a lot of anime focus on themes that come through like you know dangers of technology or you know they're themed about relationships or something like that I know the Frankenstein of Robotech that came from three different shows dealt a lot with relationships and personal relationships through generations and you know mankind not giving up are there any common themes that come through the Cowboy Bebop are they common in a lot of anime is it Something that's a little unique?
1: Uh, it is kind of unique. Um, the common themes here often oftentimes relate to the crew as family. Um, as sort of this disparate, drawn-together-from-separate-origins family. Um, and ultimately, a lot of stuff seems related to their each of their past coming back and how it affects the members of the family, whether it's um, Jet with the police force, um, Faye's background as a con artist, and in particular, Spike's background with the syndicate's. Um, why he left. Because, if you've seen enough gangster movies, you know, people normally don't leave syndicates or organized crime groups. It's a hard thing to do. They tend not to like people deciding to resign. There are minor objections to that. And that comes up over the course of the show. We also have elements related to... um, in particular, the, how the world got the way it was. There, there's, some, there's been some catastrophes in the world's history, and we get to some discussion of that as well. Oh, uh, okay. those, those are two other characters, I actually, I forgot to mention, who aren't part of the bounty hunters. Is The show features a kid character who could be annoying, but managed not to be, and a dog character who similarly, similar, similarly could have been annoying, but managed not to be. Um... One, the, the kid character is Ed, who is a young girl who is the, basically the team's very eccentric hacker. To give you an idea how eccentric she is. Ed is not the, her birth name, it's name she's picked for herself, but it's short for Edward Wong Hao Pipalu the Fourth. And she's got a sort of hippie long stocking attitude to her, with very, very eccentric speech patterns, and It's the kind of role where both the Japanese dub and the English dub manage to work in all sorts of very interesting improvisations of the character that give it a lot of depth and humor. Um, The dog is a Welsh Corgi named Ayn, which is way more intelligent than a Welsh Corgi as any right being. It's really been part of some lab experiments making it a data dog. It's... um, Ed is actually the second member to join the crew after uh, Spike. Um, Spike and Jetter start out the show as the crew in the first episode. I joins in episode two. Faye joins in episode three. And looking at the box, I believe Ed doesn't actually join until episode nine.
0: Um okay. So how many episodes did the series run?
1: Twenty six episodes. That's about kind of average. Most anime series run between twelve to twenty six episodes, kind of two seasons.
0: Yeah, they do seem to be structured around actually having a beginning, a middle, and an ending to the stories rather than the typical North American just starting to change in the last few years for the large part, but the you know, typical North American perpetual second act.
1: Yeah. Most anime series, unless they're based on a manga, they have a beginning, middle, of an- and end in mind. If it's based on a manga, it depends on whether or not the manga's been finished or not. Um, if the manga is still ongoing, then usually what will happen is they'll adapt a particular arc, um, assuming they, they don't have another second season lined up for, like the usual sort of Shonen Jump-style shows like Dragon Ball Z or Naruto or Bleach will run as long as the manga is running. And if they run out of manga, they'll stick a filler arc in there until they can get enough manga to do another arc based on that, rather than putting the show on a break.
0: Um, okay. So where does the movie fit in with the context of the series? Is it like you know X Files: Fight the Future, which was in the middle? Is it Serenity, where it follows after?
1: It's in what? It's an interquel. It's it happens over the course in the middle of the series. The show has a very definite end to it and the movie was actually made after the show finished. Um, and at that time, Chichiro Watanabe basically just came out and said, I'm not going to mess with the ending. There is some vagaries there. I don't want to answer them, because no the matter what answer I give, someone wouldn't be satisfied with it. Um, so by putting the show in the middle, they have things where they have the full chemistry of the cast as it was at that point in the show. It's like set around like twenty between 22 and 23, um, or between twenty three and twenty four. I think it's like twenty between twenty two and twenty three. Um, but it has this. Um, but it is there, everyone's together. There's a strong chemistry without having to mess with the very final ending that we had at the end of the show.
0: Okay, so if it's set between the episodes, is it a good jumping on point? Does it have enough background? for new viewers to come in? Have you tried showing new viewers the movie first to see if they could follow all the narrative?
1: I haven't, but um, when I was rewatching it before we did the podcast, I was kind of paying attention to this and saying, okay, how much background do you really need to get into this? And if you need that background, do they tell that to you in a organic fashion? And they do. Um, the main background that you really need to run into, need to, to mess with, is... Um, the stuff related to Spike's backstory with the syndicate the stuff related to um, Jet's background as a cop and that's spelled out for you um, we have Jet going and speaking to his contacts on the force um, we have and mentioning that he'd left we have a new character who's introduced in the um, in the movie which I'll get to a bit more when we get to the um, full synopsis discussion there uh, who, who um, Spike, through building a rapport with her, kind of gets into his own backstory there. Um, and so th- that comes out, but it's a really good, it's a perfect place to kind of slip in to the show, which is also really good because the movie is currently the only version that's in print. The show was brought out on DVD in the U.S. by Bandai's um, U.S. division, Bandai Visual. And Bandai has since shut that down because it wasn't being profitable enough. Um, it's kind of complicated how th- this works with the how the monetize, how the anime industry works. I don't want to get too inside baseball here, but short version is I'll just say that I feel that Bandai made a dumb decision by shutting the their U.S. division down, and I do hope the TV show gets light gets relicensed someday. You can still find the, the um, DVD collections used, but it'll cost you more than it did when it was, everything was still in print.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, right.
0: yeah, as far as the synopsis goes, before you get into that, um, just so our listeners know, I deliberately came in blind, so I know next to nothing about this, because I find I enjoy things the most, if I go unloading as little as possible. And a lot of times when i movie-viewing decisions are based solely on reading the writing and directing credits. So with that in mind, you said you, you had the full synopsis prepared. In the usual three-act story, what would you say happens in the first act? And let's say we could just limit it to that so we don't get a lot of spoilers. Just what is it that kicks things off and get things moving?
1: Okay, the crew of the Bebop are on Mars. They've just arrived on Mars... They're hunting a bounty of this hacker. He's fairly small time. Um, it's primarily Faye's case, and with a bit of help from Ed, they tracked him down to the. They tracked him down this truck, and Faye's tailing it through with her little spaceship. When the p- truck pulls over on a major Martian freeway, freeway on Mar- this main Martian city, and the guy, this guy who is not the hacker gets out of the truck, walks away from it, and the truck blows up, releasing a some sort of biological weapon that kills a big number of people, more than just an explosion, and the guy escapes. The this leads to the Martian government putting out um, a five hundred million Wulong, which is the currency of the uh, setting, five hundred million Wulong bounty on this guy. Now, the Bebop crew throughout the show and the movie is perpetually broke. So, they want this bounty. They want it really bad. Um, And so they start heading out after this guy. And the first act is investigation of what the attack was with, and who is this guy, and why is he doing this? Um, The the, It's not being spoiled to mention the guy's name. His name is Vincent Villaggio. The... um, and he's a very, very kind of nothing nihilistic, like kind of somewhat nihilistic figure. He has a wears a black, he was dressed all in black, black trench coat, um, long black hair, the beard and goatee. He's kind of loosely modeled after the look that Bob, Dil- one of the looks that Bob Dylan was sporting, I think, in like the 80s or 90s. Um, in fact, the movie's original title in Japan was "Cowboy Bebop Knocking on Heaven's Door." They changed the title to just the movie subtitle to the movie in the U.S. because they were slightly concerned that um, Dylan's label might sue them.
0: Yeah, I get that. It happens.
1: Yeah. Um, and so there's, this re- and so this guy has a recurring motif through his dialogue about um, sort of some sort of religious stuff, as far as like is the world we're living in now, purgatory, that sort of thing. Um, he had a rough background, and that's a big part of the investigation in later acts, is who is this guy, why is he doing this, and how do we stop him?
0: Okay. Right, so comparing it to North American fare, uh, in terms of the feel as far as lighting, editing, that pacing, are there any films that it's similar to, so I get an idea for what the tone would be?
1: Hmm. Um. In terms of lighting and tone, it's kind of. I kind of compare it to a certain mix of um, a little bit of eighties Michael Mann, um, where he before he went started going for the um, handheld semi-documentaries. Um, limited added additional lighting stuff like with collateral and that sort of thing. Like late eighties and a little bit of early nineties stuff. A bit of um not Rennie Harlan. Um, but it, it, it's it's got a very kind of sort of action thriller tone to it with fitz because we're it's meant to be kind of a bigger um a bigger case and a bigger scope than most of the stuff that Bebop crew has done. The one big thing that that's distinct for this, that I haven't seen done much in Western live action film is we get, swoop, they do a lot of kind of swooping pullover shots um, often through like com, uh, confined environments, but it's the kind of thing that with a conventional camera, you just couldn't do it necessarily. Um, it might be something that the Wachowskis might do or might try to do, but if they did it, they'd be emulating um, what they'd be doing it as deliberate emulation of Watanabe more than Watanabe emulating them. Um, and it's it, it's it's a very interesting visual flourish. It's definitely something that only works in animation and only works with animated film kind of thing um, because you need the extra. The, the increased frame count, I guess basically the number of frames per second that you get with animated film budget to pull off those kind of shots. Um, I was watching a document, um, watching the making of stuff on the DVD, and they're talking about this, where when they made the movie, basically um, Watanabe got all of his crew back together from the show, and they basically went, Alright, we have a movie. We can do, make everything all more, all the more fluid than we could do in the TV show because with the TV animation, you have a limit, much more limited budget in terms of the fluidity of your animation and they can really work with that here in terms of how the, how fluid the action looks when people, when we have martial arts fights or through camera movements or that sort of thing.
0: Okay, and the martial arts fights, are they more, like medium and long shots? Is this the tradition? in the Eastern films, so you can actually see the talent of the people doing it, or is it more the the close-up and the faster cutting that North America does, so they just get that one good throw, and you don't need someone who's maybe quite as talented when you edit it together?
1: They tend to go more for the medium or the long shots. Um, Part of the thing with Japanese animation um, in particular is a lot of people who get into animation in Japan are animation geeks, not just, like, geeks about the material in animation, like mechanical design or giant robots or what are you, but they care—they get into animation because they care about the craft of animation. Um, there's a little bit about this in a separate work that I've reviewed for the site previously called Taku no Video*, where there's a sequence in there where the characters are watching um, *Macross*. Do you remember *Love*? And they're—they uh, have like an LCD of it, or a bootleg VHS or something, and they're like. Going frame by frame and looking at all the detail of the animation for the mechanical design or the movements of missiles or all this that and the other thing, um, and so with TV you have a certain degree of cut corners with particularly the in betweening for uh, action scenes. But here they can you can get a good long look at it and see the full body language and so you get to see the full fight, um, which is in particular significant because. Again, Spike fights like Bruce Lee. He does a lot of the Jeet Kune Do, Kung Fu martial arts stuff, uh, as opposed to your basic kind of boxing semi MMA kind of stuff that you get with Western um, T V shows or the in the case of like old classic Trek where it's basically a little bit pro wrestling and a little bit nineteen um, thirties cowboy movie um, fighting. Um, so there's a bit so there's Says they want to show off the fluidity and um, how good the fighting looks. And so if you want to take advantage of that with a cinema in the big screen with a movie form. You use the wide shots or the medium shots so you can see the full action, the sequence of punch, punches as opposed to just the the, the big one that hits.
0: Okay. All right. so, I mean, you talked earlier about the, the music, and how the composer incorporates a lot of styles, and this is maybe a little heavier on jazz than the rest, but they can access it all. Going through it, is it dialogue heavy, and the music is an undercurrent, or are there times where music takes over? Um, is, go ahead. I was gonna say, does it feel more like a, you know, more like as prominent as, say, a John Williams score, or is it more like a Hans Zimmer or James Newton Howard score?
1: Um, uh, it's kind of like the Hans Zimmer, James Newton, well, it's kind of a little both. Um, we have scenes where we get the action scenes where they put a lot of focus on the music. Um, dialogue scenes, there usually isn't a lot of music in the background. Um, in particular, Yoko Kanno initially doing just score music for this, also wrote several songs with her, group, with her band, The Seatbelts, for the movie. And so we have a few scenes where have characters walking around and investigating, and we have no dialogue. Uh, it's just the character walking around, talking to people. We see their body language of the two people, and then the upper, the main audio current for this is the um, is the music. Whether it's when um, Spike's going through a Middle Eastern focused neighborhood, um, Middle Eastern neighborhood, and it's sort of semi Middle Eastern music. Or another one where they wrote a kind of they kind of wrote a kind of country theme song and used that for getting it's another walking around investigating dialogue scene. What's and a situation where the important bit isn't not what's being said, but that um, Spike is following the chain of um, contacts and people. And so we can just tell, okay, he's going going point A to point B to point C, and we have a cool piece of music that's going over this. Um, An interesting trivia note I dug up before this got um, before we started recording was apparently this movie was originally planned to be just a hour and a half long, ninety minute movie, and then partway through um, pre-production, basically they got approved for another thirty minutes. That might be part of this, but it doesn't hurt it because the music's pretty good. Um and so it's like eh, it's okay. I, I don't mind it. It's so sort of like to a certain degree with like for example take Blade Runner, which we'll be talking about later at some point. Maybe not me, but on this podcast. Um, there are scenes in there were, yes, some of the establishing shots of future Los Angeles could be cut. But um, because narrative wise they don't add much aside from establishing the world but it's not a bad thing that they're
0: um, there kind of thing. Okay. Given that it is animated, uh, thinking back to a lot of the segments that we saw in the Animatrix, one of the things that, that struck me there is that the different segments all had different color palettes in use, and they were using a lot of that to accentuate the mood. You said there are some grayscale. Does it feel like a natural color? Does it feel like a sepia tone's?
1: It it tends to be a warmer color palette. Most of the grey stuff is used in flashbacks or um there's a couple of bits in there where it's kind of meant to be deliberately deliberately nostalgic where like um jet meets a contact at a Martian drive in movie theater that's showing a old Western movie in black and white. And on the one hand it's kinda of jarring because it's I mean, nowadays drive-in movie theaters are already dying. And they and they generally don't make movies in black and white anymore, except in separate cases of deliberate stylistic decisions. But this is black and white with film grain kind of thing, like film grain and scratches and all that stuff. And it's an interesting, um, and silent also, uh, with just a soundtrack, which is an interesting note. Um...
0: So was it an homage or sort of like a recreation of a specific movie that they had in mind or? It's kind of. It's it's
1: it, it's definitely an homage, but not to any particular silent Western movie. It's kind of like a weird mix of um like forties and sixties western for what the bit they have. Um not just in terms of like the tone, but it's got like a little bit, like, the music is kind of the more twangy, um, some of Ennio Morricone's twangy, more twangy stuff, like, um, I want to say the opening from, uh, Fistful from For a Few Dollars More, um, but also has, like, um, like, the sheriff walks up to the bad guy at the um, saloon and challenges him to Gunfight outside at high noon, kind of thing. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a deliberate callback, but not to a particular movie, just to general styles.
0: Uh. Okay, so it sounds like more homage to the Spaghetti Western.
1: Yeah, and Spaghetti Western stuff ties into this as well, uh, a lot. Yeah, um, there, yeah this show has a lot of Spaghetti Western callbacks, both in the movie, and in the show, uh, it doesn't happen in this in the movie, but like on the first episode of the show, um, we have like Spike waiting for a bounty um, outside a bar while wearing a poncho, um, and it's not a typical stylist, typically um, what the character wears, but you can't feel okay. This is a callback to um, Clint Eastwood's Man Without a Name kind of thing. Um, okay. Um. In terms of content notes, I would say the, the film, I forget what, what MPAA rating it has, I believe it has an R, and I believe it's an earned R. Um, it's not as graphic by any means as as the elements of um, the Animatrix are, but there's profanity, there's blood, people get shot, and they bleed when they get shot. Um, so that is definitely a thing that's going on. Um, so if if I, I'd say if you're gonna be if you're worried about whether or not you should watch this in front of your kids, I'd say older teens. Older teens. Um fifteen, sixteen at the youngest.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm just pulled up the uh internet movie database page to check all the international ratings and yeah, I don't actually. Oh, yeah, USA it was R. Uh, in Quebec it was 13 plus, and the rest of Canada it was 14A. Looking everywhere from Argentina through most of them are putting it in the teens. So they're, I think 12 was the youngest age I'm seeing showing up on these ratings. Malaysia was 18 SG, whatever the SG means. Yeah, and yeah, Singapore was NC 16. See, it does definitely seem to be late teens. That appears to be the consensus.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's reasonable. It's, I'm not saying that kids would not be able to handle this at all. Um, I mean, I get, I watched the show when I was in high school, and it was actually the first to watch it not on. Cartoon Network as I checked out the VHS's, VHS tapes of the show from the library. Um, give me a bit of a timetable there. And watched it that way. So I was watching the uncut version and there are some definitely intense episodes um, but it's... Actually, now that I think about it, like nothing worse in terms of violence than some of the stuff on CSI lately. Um, I mean, it's the most violence is some people get is people getting shot
0: okay okay so the kind of thing where parents depending on their children may or may not want to screen it for themselves first
1: yeah yeah
0: okay well i think that gives me a pretty good idea of what it's like So, were there any closing thoughts that you had there?
1: Um, The main thing is, I definitely say that yeah, that this is considering what's available and that the cost of getting the TV show has gone up significantly. This is probably the best and most affordable place to come in um, for Cowboy Bebop. If you enjoy the movie, definitely would recommend checking out the show. Either if you can afford it, picking up the DVDs or I think if you have, if you have Netflix rental in your country or a disc rental, the disc should be there uh, on that system, and you can get them that way. Um, or local libraries, if they check out DVDs, may may have it. So it's definitely a show worth checking out.
0: All right, so thanks, Alex. I'll keep an eye out for it.
1: And so one thing worth mentioning is as far as who beat it in the poll. All right, beat by Iron Man. Yeah, um it, it got it got stomped. Um that was it it deserved to get beat by Iron Man. Iron Man was a great movie. Um I also definitely say that actually if you like the kind of witty banter stuff from Iron Man, you would like probably like beat up the movie, but um but yeah, it, I'm not surprised it got beaten by Iron Man. I don't know what the numbers were for the polling.
0: No, um, uh, yeah, well, Release those in about mid-August. The last week wraps up, or the last week wraps up on August 9th. Okay. Um, or actually, it starts okay. August 9th.
1: So. But yeah, so I'm not surprised at all that Cowboy Bebop got beat by Iron Man, and there is no shame in losing to Iron Man.
0: No, I'd say not. It's doing well, and actually, Iron Man has progressed to round 3, where statistically it would have stopped in round 2.
1: Yeah. So we'll see if, um if Iron Man can beat Alien in a future round of,
0: of uh, polling. All right. Well, again, thank you very much. Uh, and the listeners, if you have any feedback or suggestions about which movie you'd like us to discuss next from the tournament or just in general, you can email us at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. And that's the numbers for two, not the words. All right, so thank you and... We'll do this again, hopefully fairly soon.
1: I'm looking forward to it.